You're in the cantina, where we serve up a shot in the arm with a shot of tequila on the side. Who's got the travel bug? I find myself with a terrible case of itchy feet. The road calls to me, but alas, I cannot go. Luckily, we live in an age where we can be anywhere in just a click. Who loves a good mystery? I personally adore being titillated. So let's fall down the rabbit hole and fall in love with the mystery of Easter Island. Pour yourself a drink and let's jump into it. Let's detox on the rocks. Salut! What's in a name? Would an island by a different name be any less mysterious? Well, in this case, the name means very little. It got its name, Easter Island, because it was discovered Easter 1722, when Dutch explorer Admiral Jacob Roggeveen landed. That's it. Now, it's common practice in history to rename places when you've arrived because of your, I don't know, innate specialness or perhaps gargantuan ego. The island was already inhabited in 1722, however the people of the island called it Tepito Ote Hanua, or Center of the World, Land's End, Fragment of Earth. One of those. Now today the people of the island call it Rapa Nui, meaning Great Rapa. So let's call it Rapa Nui. I mean, it's their island, why should I name it, right? Rapa Nui is the easternmost corner of Polynesia where there are over a thousand islands. Now these islands can be as small as a coffee table, so maybe not the lounge on a beach, Mai Tai kind of island you were thinking of. Okay, that's what I think of too when I hear island. Rapa Nui is a pretty small island. It's triangle shaped and 24 kilometers lengthwise and 12 kilometers wide. It's been called the most isolated place or one of the most isolated places on earth. The closest landmass to it is Chile and its Chilean territory. It's also 3,200 kilometers away. So this is not like a day trip situation. The closest inhabited island is 2,000 kilometers away. So you're not borrowing a cup of sugar from your neighbor here. Now, as mentioned, the island is triangle shaped and the way it came to be is actually pretty cool. Now, the triangle island is a triangle because each point of it is a volcano. So there's one young volcano, meaning you can still see lava swirling around and smoke plumes. The other two are older, <clears throat> sorry, more mature volcanoes. This is an area loaded with active tectonics moving around. Now, when the youngest volcano erupted, lava spilled out and connected itself with the other two volcanoes. Picture like a three-legged table, essentially. So, to me, this begs the question, if the island was discovered in 1722, but there were people there already, well, who was it who lived on one of the most remote places on Earth, in the middle of the sea, and how did they get there? Well, since the closest landmass is Chile, it would stand to reason that it would be Chileans, no? Well, no. <laughs> Remember, this island is the eastmost point of Polynesia. It was first inhabited by Polynesian sailors, arguably the most successful ocean-going settlers of all time throughout history. Now, an interesting point, 
or I found it interesting, is their culture has no written history. So that means no maps, no coordinates. Oh, and they also didn't have a compass. Now, I get lost in malls and have no idea which direction is west. If my life depended on it, I could perhaps find my way home from 20 minutes away. But don't worry, I never get lost. I just change where it is I'm going. They traveled on what looks a lot like modern-day catamarans, which is really cool. They used the stars and their deep connection with nature to navigate. So they used the flight patterns of seabirds to help find where they were going, where they'd been, and where they were on their way to. But how would they remember all of this or know all of this if they don't write it down? I have post-its everywhere and I still haven't bought toothpaste for two days. I really cannot squeeze that tube any tighter. <laughs> well, they did it through oral tradition of stories and in songs. That's beautiful, poetic, and wonderfully dreamy, isn't it? The only thing is, it does make it just a little bit difficult to pin down exact dates. I did a lot of research here. I read and watched YouTube videos. There's a lot of debate about the timeline. So the guesstimate from what I've read is somewhere in the 8th century. These Polynesian sailors made it to Rapa Nui. So now we have a little bit of background. Trust me, there's lots more about Rapa Nui. But when I say Easter Island, what's the first thing that comes to mind? The big giant heads, right? Well, me too. Now, these big giant head statues are called Moai, or Faces of the Holy Ancestors. Some of these stand as high as 32 feet, and they're not just heads, they had full bodies as well. There's a total of 887 on the island. Now, of these, 397 are incomplete. They're halfway done, or they're in various stages of not quite ready. So, almost half. Now, of these ones that are complete, only 200 of them are up on platforms. The moai are carved from something called tuff, T-U-F-F, which is compacted volcanic ash, which the Romans used frequently back in the day as well. Think of Pompeii. I mean, when it's a fluttering down, it's, it's soft and kind of fuzzy looking, but once compacted, it becomes, well, tough. <laughs> And if it seems like this floaty substance would make them kind of weigh less, well, they weigh up to 82 tons per moai. So how did they come to stand? And by the way, when I say stand, they stand in rows facing away from the ocean. They're looking inland, towards the land, for the most part. Archaeologists found where they were carved. It was in a quarry on the island called Ranu Raraku. It looks almost like a bowl, but it's a wide, circular, volcanic bowl. There are lots of half-finished moai face-up carved out of the tuff, and it looks kind of spooky. Archaeologists deduced that the reason why there may be so many half-done moai they were using stone tools, so if there was anything, a vein of anything going through the tuff, it would have made it ridiculously impossible to sculpt through and actually produce it in the form they wanted to. 
Now, I mentioned that 200 Moai stand-on platforms. These platforms are called Ahu, and they are crazy impressive. Now, these were carved from stone, which, remember, is ridiculously difficult because they have these stone tools. Now, they've been fit together, this Ahu, so meticulously and precisely, you cannot fit a razor blade through the blocks. It's a giant stone jigsaw puzzle platform. It, when I was writing this, I kept on wanting to call it an altar, and there's something kind of altar-like feeling to it, I think. Now, the largest platform, or altar, has a number of moai standing on it. It's 15 moai, and this is called Ahu Tongariki. They all face away from the sea. Which, I don't know why I feel like that has some significance, but it, to me, made an impression. So how did the Moai get from where they were carved in the quarry in that volcanic bowl to kilometers away to a cliffside? Well, that, I think, is the coolest part of the story. The islanders were asked this exact question by archaeologists, and their response was, they walked. Now, being a cheeky monkey myself, I adore this answer. But is it really a cheeky answer, or did that actually happen? American archaeologists Terry Hunt and Carl Lipo may have figured it out. There have been numerous theories that they were rolled around on logs or kind of rolled down a hill, but there are lots of moai that are toppled down all over the island, some face up, some face down. These are called road moai, and the archaeologists Hunt and Lipo noticed something. They're a little bit different from the ones that are standing. They're well, they're heftier. They look like they have their winter weight on. They're more bowling pin shaped. They're more bottom heavy and they have bigger bellies. There's also detailed features like the eyes that haven't been done yet. A 2012 documentary by the National Geographic Channel showed Hunt and Lipo with a scaled down model of a moai made of concrete walking. What they did, and this is genius, is they tied ropes around the forehead covering kind of where the eyes are. They had one rope pulling to the left, one to the right, and one behind. And using a heave-ho of pulling to the left, then to the right, the moai gradually developed kind of a rocking motion back and forth. Now, because of that design of the protruding belly, it was predisposed to lean forward. So that's where the rope from the back of the head would keep it from actually falling over. Because of the genius weight distribution, the moai leans forward. Now, I'm not body shaming, but this belly really is what makes this tick. Think, have you ever moved a really big standing mirror and you kind of walk it forward? Just like that. Only the moai were 30 feet tall and 80 tons. Now, I put a clip from this documentary of the Moai walking on Detox on the Rocks podcast on Instagram if you want to take a little peek. It's absolutely incredible, and I have to say, it's it kind of makes you feel emotional and proud at what people can do. Um, so definitely check that out, or you can check out Moai walking on the National Geographic channel, and it's all over YouTube as well. It's amazing. 
When watching it, do keep in mind that it's not nearly as large as the real Moai were, and it's still impressive. Now, based on the calculations of how they were able to move this Moai of the size, they estimated that 100 meters per hour, or one kilometer a day, would be needed to his Ahu platform. There is so much that we know about Rapa Nui and even more that we don't know. And for every one piece of evidence that we learn, it brings up 10 more questions. For instance, the island was originally tropical, but now it's barren. So what happened? Well, Polynesian sailors would travel with dogs, pigs, chickens, rats. But it seems on this specific island, there were rats and chickens. Now rats love palm nuts, palm seeds, and there were these incredible ancient trees on the island. The rats, if you know anything about how quickly they breed, would have exhausted the food supply incredibly quickly. Now, how they dealt with this is absolutely genius. Their agriculture, what they did to maintain their way of life. Again, there's so many mysteries about this, but I had to <laughs> I had to stop myself somewhere. I think a part two may be in the future. It's time for... What's in your glass? Now, Rapa Nui is a Polynesian island, but since it's a Chilean territory, I thought that we would take on one of my favorite cocktails and a Chilean classic, the Pisco Sour. Today we're using Chilean Pisco. It's incredibly smooth and my personal preference when it comes to Pisco. Today I'm working with Gobernador Reservado. It's my personal favorite. So you want to take two ounces of pisco, and if you're using a 1.5 shot glass, that's a shot and just under a half. If you're using a one ounce shot glass, two shots. To this, you want to add the same amount of fresh lime juice. It's really got to be fresh here. To this, we're going to add one tablespoon of simple syrup and two dashes of Angostura bitters. Now, originally this recipe calls for egg whites. I skipped that, I skipped the eggs. Um, so it's gonna be a little bit different, that's why it's our take on it. So you're not gonna have that really pretty foam that generally comes with it, but what I like to do is when I'm shaking it, I shake it on ice, but then I add crushed ice, give it a mix, and serve. Now Chile is one of the most incredible wine producing countries, and pisco is actually made from grapes. So I am gonna be talking much more about pisco in future episodes because I've gotta say, once you're hooked on Pisco, there's no turning back. Salut! Well, that's the end of my drink and the end of the show. Remember, we find what we go looking for, and the grass is greener where you water it. Now, I'm quoting a beautiful set of coasters given to the show by Kokoro Spirits. This is an amazing spirits company. They make award-winning tequila and are the 2019 and 2020 gold medal winners in the San Francisco World Spirits Competition. These coasters are really cool too, because if you plant them, there's wildflower seeds in them and they grow flowers. I love everything about this company. They make artisan small batch tequila. Currently available for pre-order, they donate 1% for the planet as well as support local, non-profit organizations local to the regions where their spirits are sourced. Make sure to check them out at kokorospirits.com.
That's K-O-K-O-R-O spirits.com. I'll be sure to include the link in the show notes. And if you're having a hard time getting to sleep lately, sounds like you could use a bedtime story. Make sure to join us for Detox Bedtime Stories, new episodes dropping every Thursday night. Join us for episode two of Treasure Island, read in the menthol cool stylings of your host, Isabella Voss. See you there, sweet dreams. This has been a Cat Flap production in association with Not For Sale Media.